Fanden. Exterior. Interior. Restaurant. Bar. Club. Day. Night. Action. How's your day going, guys, gals? My day is awesome. You know why? Because this is part two of Restaurant Fiction's chit-chat on the Gem Saloon with Chef Justin Warner, TV personality, Food Network TV personality, Justin Warner, the author of Marvel Eat the Universe, the official Marvel cookbook, Justin Warner. That's right. This is part two of Restaurant Fiction, the podcast that reviews every single fictional restaurant, bar, and club. It just talks about the writing process, the story process, and how the fictional restaurant bar and club is actually probably the most important part of any storyline. It says the most about any character, and it makes any piece of visual art memorable. That's right. We break it down. We talk. This is just the continuation. This is the uh, enhancement of part one. If you thought part one was awesome, it's about to get even better. Anyway, we're going to cut to the chase and get right to part two of our chit-chat with Chef Justin Warner. Go. How important is the gem to Deadwood? I mean, in the TV show, it's huge. The current iteration of the Gem Saloon is kind of, as far as I know, it's in the Mineral Palace Hotel. And all of that stuff has been shifted around many times throughout the course of history. The gem, without the gem, there is no TV show Deadwood. And I kind of actually want to say without the gem, it would just be a, a tragic loss that that name is not employed in the actual Deadwood. Because from people like myself who are fans of the show, you see that and you're like, wow. And then you go in and it's kind of a normal casino bar. But it's a nice little, it's a nice nod. You know, it's, it's a nice thing to remind fans of the show that, hey, this is a real place and these were real people and these are real events and real hotels, you know, like, and real brothels and real everything. Like I said, it would just be a real shame if the gem didn't still exist. What restaurant fiction really admires about Al, and yes, you, you've mentioned many of the good attributes as well as, you know, the unsavory, but one of the good attributes is he owns the gem and he is constantly there. He is the owner who shows his face at all times. Obviously, he also lives there. Now, how important is it as a business owner and a restaurant owner that the owner is there pretty much all the time? It's super important. I always tell people that if I'm not making TV or sleeping, I'm probably here. I don't know. Bobby Flay once told me, he's like, you know, you need a, you need a temple. Because when people are fans, they, they want to come and they want to <laughs> sample the wares and see if it's as, as good as what they were promised. You know, it's kind of uh, like oddly, like religiously thematic, but at the same time, it makes sense. Like if you're going to work in the public eye in entertainment, hopefully you are, you play the same guy that you play on, on TV and hopefully you are just as accessible. You know, people welcome me through food television into their living room all the time. I feel as though it's important to be able to let them into my battle station, you know, and, and let them see... <laughs> What, what we're doing. And it's not all, all talk. And I think also Al and I kind of share a managerial style in that Al is a, 
a morale manager first. And I think, I don't think Al's, you know, there's rarely ever any mention of, of Al being in the saloon for money. He's, he's into it for position. And that's not necessarily power. Position, I think, it can often be more important than actual power because Al is able to manipulate the comings and goings of, of everyone in Deadwood. And it's simply because he has a great base of operations and has the ability to satisfy, you know, sometimes depraved human needs. And I, I think to me, it's like a Dune, you know, he, he who controls the spice, you know, it's like in a cold weather climate like South Dakota, he who controls the soup, you know, and I, I control the soup. <laughs> You're the owner of the gem, not Al. How would you run the gem saloon? Probably less bloodthirsty, definitely less racist, but I admire the cunning businessman that Al is. And Al's always willing to broker a deal. And Al's always willing, I mean, for the most part, to compromise. And Al might have to work with unsavory characters to get something done. I kind of kind of admire all of that. I don't know if admire is the right word, but, you know, Al is essentially a, a, a good bad guy and a bad good guy. I think that as a character, I admire that how fleshed out that is because you have to be a little mad in every definition of the word to run a restaurant or any like good base of operations. Excellent. So one of the cookbooks you wrote, it's called Marvel Eat the Universe, the official cookbook. Uh, Though Marvel movies, you know, in their own right are ripe with food scenes, you know, they have the, uh, the shawarma. I believe Ant-Man loves tacos. You know, how did you expand on the Marvel universe and how did you create your own recipes, you know, for this? Yeah. Don't forget Paprikash. Um, oh, anyway. Paprikash, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so th- when I talked with Marvel about my interpretation of their characters through food, I said, look, this isn't the time and place where we make Captain America shield cupcakes. Like anyone can do that. But what are we learning about Captain America and what are we learning about food? The answer is not a whole lot. And so I said, I want people who are fans of food to become better fans of the Marvel Universe. And I want people who are fans of the Marvel Universe to become better fans of food. And so to me, it was always about doing both of those things justice. If we didn't learn more about our actual world, we probably don't deserve to learn more about a fictitious world. And, you know, that's that's kind of it. For Captain America, we talked about rationing and we made beef tongue terrines out of tin cans. It ruled. I think that we did both things a service. Beef tongue, totally edible, totally delicious. It was served in aspic. Aspic, essentially like a lost food at this point. But aspic, man, like is awesome. Uh, I want to say I was at Musso and Frank maybe in L.A., is that the name of it? I don't know. It's a steakhouse. It is. They, Absolutely. Yeah. They, from, yeah. They still have aspic on the menu. And I was like, give me the aspic dogs. And they're like, good choice. You know, and I was like, okay, okay, okay. And it's this like heaping, helping bowl of jellified, cold meat liquid. And it was so freaking satisfying. I actually ate that immediately after the Eternals premiere to bring it all full circle. I was like, this is satisfying. This is awesome. It's not pretty though, you know. Like you, you put aspic on your Instagram, and it, you get negative likes. Man, you'll get blocked. It's inappropriate, you know. Um, but to me, it was an op- using Captain America, Captain America as an opportunity to remind the world that aspic rules was perfect. 
talking about underutilized cuts of beef. Perfect. Using tin cans as a, a mold and as a vessel. Awesome. I love it. And uh, my next recipe that I'm going to be cooking from your cookbook with my wife is we're going to be doing your canned uh, chicken shawarma. I, I love that. I love that recipe. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Cool. Um, everyone has access to a tin can. And I think that we don't really think about it as being anything. You know, that used to be a toy telephone for a lot of people. And I think the tin can, you know, hasn't really undergone a lot of innovation, yet it is still fundamentally important to us. And I think it's good to celebrate those sorts of things. You know, and even you just hearing that answer and and how you uh, went to Marvel and all of that, you know, you're you're putting in a story, you know, you're you're connecting, you're connecting the dots, obviously, with Marvel and with food, but even with your first cookbook, you're putting in the story like you're putting in the story. How important is the story to the food that you're cooking? To me, it's, you know, the ultimate seasoning. And it's a seasoning that can't be replaced. It's the reason that you, for example, you might buy a restaurant cookbook and make it at home. And because it's at your home and not at the restaurant, it's like, eh, close. You know, it's not as good. You know, like uh, context, key, storytelling, ambiance, everything. It, it's all part of the, the big picture. And to me, a story makes everything a little bit more palatable. You know, when there's a, something to follow versus just getting beaten over the head. Imagine if eating was not a story itself. Imagine if eating was instantaneous. You press one button and you're full. That sucks. That's boring. But eating is is also a story. You you sit down, you smell it before you see it. You see it. You decide where you're going to digest first. And you know, I don't think people do this cuz a lot of people eat very routinely. But there are so many actions and sequences in eating. That's kind of if you choose to look at it that way. But it's a little story in itself. And think about it, the, the highest of highbrow dining is, you know, a multiple act event. And it's a, it's a story in itself. And that to me is, is it. And I think context makes everything better. And there's a reason that everybody says, well, my grandma this, my grandma that, because grandma probably told you tons of stories. And what do we do when we eat? We converse. And we converse generally about either the future or the past, the story that hasn't been told or a story that maybe recently occurred. How was your day? That's the beginning of a story. And with story comes voice. So obviously voice is the most important thing. You know, how, Justin, you know, how, how did you find your voice and how would you describe it? Oh, uh, <laughs> well, when you have no other uh, marketable skills, you rely on what you have. And um, so I grew up as a waiter and I, I was a waiter until I started cooking. And to me, setting oneself apart, but not so far apart um, that it becomes weird or super weird. You know, there's like weird and then there's uncomfortable. And so my goal was always to be like delight, pleasantly weird, delightfully weird. And uh, I'll never forget there, there was a, a waiter that I, I was working with who was a little uncomfortably weird. And I was like, okay, cool. Like I've gotten to, I see that into the spectrum. And then I also see the, how we doing today, folks? My name is blank and I'm here to serve you. You know, can I get you started with a couple of Cokes or pep? You know, that sort of thing. And I was like, I just need to choose my words and figure out how to be refreshingly different. You know, that that's also weird, you know, but weird could be good. Weird could be bad. 
like refreshingly different. And I try not to be routine. And people like accuse me of having a good vocabulary. I barely made it out of high school, man. It's not that my vocabulary is anything better than anyone else's. It's truly not. I might just choose different words for different situations because there could be a better word choice. And that, to me, diction, diction is everything. And how do you put your voice in the food that you cook? I like everything to be delightfully, like refreshingly weird or refreshingly out there. You know, maple syrup is probably not the number one thing you put in a soup, but I did it. There's just a lot of, I don't know, there's like on TV shows and it's, it's a little hubris. I call it the Justin Sequa. And it's like the, it's the flourish, you know, it's the, it's the detail that, that lets you know that you might not see my signature until you see it, but it's there. And really quick, you know, we mentioned about the stories, you know, my grandma said this, my grandma always did this, you know, what, what kinds of stories when it comes to food stick with you? And we even just stories in general, whether it's movies, TV, you know, what kind of stories uh, stick with you? I, I like it when, you know, it's kind of like going back to the tin can. I like it when the ordinary is extraordinary through the story that is told. And that makes me happy. Uh, I don't know, like, I'll never forget, and I'll tell tell my grandkids this or whatever, if I ever have them, but my grandfather used to say, did you know squirrels like grapefruits? I'd say, what? And he'd eat a grapefruit and throw it out off the porch, and sure enough, a squirrel would pick up the whole damn grapefruit and try and carry it up a tree. And I was just like, what the heck? Are grapefruits like magical and good? And then I ate a grapefruit, and I was like, grapefruits are magical and good. And like, I don't know that I would have had the affinity for grapefruits unless he showed me this dumb thing about the squirrel taking the grapefruit up the tree. Maybe he like trained them. I have no clue why the grapefruits did this or why the squirrels did that. But, um, you know, it was, I don't know. I just like it when a little more influence is, is put on something that might be run of the mill. You know, for example, in Sopranos, and I've never watched all of it, but it's practically a meme now, but like cutting the garlic with a razor blade, that says so much about the importance of garlic and also about the character. You know, they could have just said garlic. I love it. They could have said bam, like Emeril, you know, and they, that that's also a story, man. Sorry, I'm going down the rabbit hole. But like when Emeril would say bam with garlic and people would applaud with garlic, it's it's giving importance to something that people take for granted right like we everybody uses garlic all the time right like but garlic should freaking be celebrated you know like if aliens come we should say have you tried garlic like we're not so bad <laughs> um what is this is a hard one what is an unusual habit or an absurd thing that you love i like food that rolls anything that's on like the hot dog roller at a gas station i love that stuff I really like, I don't know, I have like a, a really soft spot for cute things. Um, I, I like, I don't care if that's like not masculine or whatever, like something's cute. I love it. Yeah. I don't know. I just, I just do what I like. I wish more people did and like, didn't, didn't worry or care so much about what other people think, you know, as long as you're not causing harm to anyone. Like, and you know, obviously I'm in a partnership with my wife. We live together, so I can't just like acquire every cute thing but i do my damnedest and sometimes she thinks they're cute too that's pretty much it i tend to actually be like very normal <laughs> excellent excellent for uh either it's an emerging 
chef. It's an emerging uh, TV personality. It's an emerging whatever. What what advice would you tell this young person, this uh, mentee to ignore? You know, they're coming to you either for cooking advice, for life advice, for I want to be like you, just advice. What are you telling them to ignore? Ignore ignore your role models. I don't know how to better say that or more politely say that, but I notoriously consume like very little food information. And it's because I don't like it to cloud my exploration. And I don't want to be pulled or swayed in one direction or another because of whatever. You know, a lot of people say, well, like, you know, you were mentored by Alton Brown. And there are a lot of things that Alton Brown and I have in common. There are a lot of things that make us very different people. And even within our field of cooking and food exploration. And I think he would say the same thing. And to me, as someone who's, you know, relatively self-taught, barely made it out of high school and doing just fine, <laughs> I think. And there are a lot of people that tell you what, how, or whatever to do. And like, honestly, most of life is just, you know, and this sounds like a freaking inspirational cat calendar or something, but like most of life is just figuring out which mistakes you want to keep making. <laughs> and that's, that's it. And like, then once you've made enough mistakes and you realize like, ah, uh, you know, I'm only going to binge drink or like, I'm only going to watch this trashy TV program or I'm only going to treat this person poorly. Then you kind of have really started to flesh out who you are and like what you like and don't like. And, you know, some people really like seemingly like making mistakes or seemingly love running late. And it's, it's the mistakes and things that or even the things that you choose to see as mistakes that ultimately make you who you are. And so I just say, you know, fail fast, man. Make a lot of mistakes right off the bat. You know, screw up. Don't screw up that bad, though, that you can't recover. But, you know, I always say by, like, the time you're in your 30s, you should know what mistakes you want to keep making. All right. You went all the way when you were young to the National Spelling Bee. You lost in the <laughs> first round. Yeah. What word What word did you flub on? It was tarpaulin or tarpaulin. Tarpaulin. Are you familiar with the word? No. Here's a clue. It's a tarp. Tarp. We say tarp, not tarpaulin. Anyway, I put an E at the end of it because I don't know. I honestly didn't care. Like, and you can read, like read interviews with me. And like, I was in the eighth grade, man. And I just like, I saw the anxiety that some of these kids were going through to do something that ultimately is somewhat obsolete, right? Like spelling right now is, has never been less important because AI and stuff does it for us that's kind of sad because I, I actually really like language and English and letters and their symbols and all of that stuff. And think about this, my friend, like now even not just spelling is becoming obsolete. Words are becoming obsolete. We didn't have emojis growing up, but emoji has never been more, more popular. And it, it one, one picture can say a thousand words, you know, literally. And so that, that freaks me out a little bit, but ultimately I got to go to a really fancy restaurant when I was there, and that might have been one of the first flirtations with what would become my career. So, you know, plenty of people I know went on and be proofreaders and copywriters that were in the spelling bee, and I'm sure plenty of them went on to become like bad human beings. And that's okay. You know, it just, it wasn't my vibe, so I didn't care. <laughs> if you could create 
your own fictional restaurant based around a video game, what would that be? What would that fictional restaurant look like? And all of that, you have all the money in the world, any time period floor is yours. Uh, this sounds like off the wall, but you know, given that we're entering into the, you know, ability to create something surreal, like me having wealth, for example, is uh it's animal crossing i just designed a restaurant in animal crossing if i had all the like money and power in the world like the nice thing that i would do for my wife is allow her to interact freely with animals and speak and communicate to them because she really likes animals i think it would just be really funny to to run an animal crossing restaurant your only patrons are like lobo the wolf you know who's a little grumpy <laughs> you know Awesome. <laughs> I, I know that's bizarre but i don't know sometimes you know the the other side of the coin the madness for me is i say everyone deserves a good bowl of soup simultaneously i'm like only animals deserve bowls of soup no human deserves soup where you taking restaurant fiction you know you have an unlimited expense account just get lost in osaka that's it. I don't care. I wish I, I mean, there's one, one restaurant called, uh, Kushikatsu Daruma. It's got a very angry chef as a mascot and he's angry because you dipped twice in the communal sauce. So that's a must. But other than that, it's just get lost there, man. There's an expression that like Osakans eat until they're broke. And like, it's weird because eating is actually the ultimate like currency, right? Like without calories, we're dead. And so it's, it's curious to me because we put so much financial pressure on ourselves, but like Osakans are like, well, I'm well-fed and broke. Who cares? You know, it's like fat and happy, right? Like, and that, that is very much me. I, I tell my staff all the time, like, you know, we, we try and pay the best we can, but you know, the odds of us being Jeff Bezos and going into space is probably slim to none, but I don't think Jeff is eating local pork belly tonight. Like we are. And we have it in a near infinite supply. And like, you know, like, I don't know that Jeff Bezos has 18 liters of sake that dispenses hot on a, on a negative seven degree day. We're rich. And I think that that's, that mentality is that Osakans find richness in food, not in money. Excellent. All right. Floor is yours uh, for shout outs. Where can people find you? Where can people, hey, where can people, like, floor is yours. Watch you, all of it. Uh, you can catch me on all sorts of Food Network programming, but uh, up and coming February 27th begins the third season of Tournament of Champions starring Guy Fieri, uh, Simon Majumdar, another uh, great podcaster, and I serve as sideline reporters and culinary ombudsmen. You can find me on all social medias and some video game platforms as Eat Fellow Humans. Uh, more about my desire for everyone to eat. There could be a comma there. Also a lesson on punctu uh, punctuation. And then uh, if you happen to be cruising through the uh, Black Hills of South Dakota or anywhere in the surrounding area and you find yourself in need of a bowl of soup, you could find me at Bokujo Ramen or it's soon to be sister restaurant BB's Natural, which will be more of a wine bar with uh, a focus on what I'm calling picnic for here type foods. Everyone, thank you for listening. Justin, you are welcome back anytime, all of the time. Whatever restaurant you want to talk about, even if it's one that uh, we've already talked about, come on by. We loved you. Guys, I believe this episode will be airing 
after the premiere of season three of Guy Fieri's Tournament of Champions on the Food Network. Well, guess what? Tune in. The premiere date already was on Sunday, February 27th, but tune in, uh, watch old episodes, get ready for new episodes because Chef Justin Warner is on it. He's on a bunch of other Food Network TV shows. This one is the most current. This one is awesome. I got to see the filming of it. I got to be a part of it. And everyone shines, including Chef Justin Warner. And if you like what you see, if you like what you hear, hey, he's on the Twitter. He's on the Instagram. His handle, eat fellow humans. That's right. As simple as that. His cookbooks are there. His TV shows are there. His restaurant in South Dakota is there. He makes a reference to it. It is awesome. Go to his restaurants, buy his cookbooks, reach out to him, see all of the abundance he is contributing to this universe, even the Marvel universe. That's right. As for us at Restaurant Fiction, hey, we're here. We're everywhere. iTunes, Audible, Spotify. Yep, that's right. Pandora even. iHeartRadio. Listen to one. Listen to many. Reach out to us, Monis at restaurantfiction.com. And always, oh yeah, we got a sponsor. It's called the 1919 Cheesecake. If you want the best cheesecake in Los Angeles, uh, hit them up at the 1919 Cheesecake. Tell them you heard of the cheesecake on the Restaurant Fiction Podcast. They'll throw you a bone, a nice, good discount, actually 15% off. Anyway. My name is Monis Rose, and until next time, nothing makes sense, and nothing ever does. Cut to exterior, interior, restaurant, bar, club, day, night. 